Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of March 17th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. So we continue our look at this Gospel. One thing we're going to see this morning as we look at chapter 8. If I was to uh, ask you what comes to mind if you hear that something is satanic, what would you come up with? Now, I know, in my mind, the first thing that would pop up is something really, you know, really blatantly and openly evil. Uh, we might think of things that, like, uh, uh, that, are, that are kind of creepy. I had a friend of mine years ago when we lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and he was, a, he was a police detective in Arlington, which is right back there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And at that point in time, that was a long time ago, uh, there were some parts of Arlington that weren't all city yet. There were actually some parts of the outskirts of Arlington that were still country and trees and undeveloped and whatnot. And it was it was kind of interesting. We had a couple of conversations, and he would talk about that they would get reports of some things going off in the woods somewhere, and they would go find and they would see places where there had been animal sacrifices and occultic symbols and things like that. And we think of something satanic. We might think of something like that. We might think of a a satanic symbol we've seen, or we may think of a, an animal sacrifice, something creepy, maybe something out of a horror movie. And while those may, in fact, be satanic, when Jesus talks this morning, we're going to see something a lot more uh, familiar that he calls satanic. Mark chapter 8. I want to actually begin reading with the passage. Well, we're going to begin with the passage we saw last week, and then keep on going. So I want to go back to verse 27, and we're going to read through verse 33. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He continued by questioning them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them not to tell anyone about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage this morning, I pray that you would, through the power of your spirit and the, the living nature of your word, that you would teach us this morning the nature not of just who you are, but what it means to be one of your followers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This whole sequence, as we talked about last week, is, is really a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. For nearly two years, Jesus has been circulating and preaching and ministering in the area of Galilee and parts north and, and even parts east. But as he takes the disciples north to an area called Caesarea Philippi, Jesus' attention very openly begins to be focused towards the south and to Jerusalem. And ultimately, 
Jesus' life at this point in time takes a real turn, and he begins moving towards the cross. You know what it's like to see the shadows on a sunny day. In fact, if you hadn't, it had been a while since we've seen shadows around here. It been a while since we've seen sunny days, but finally over the last few days the sun's come out, and you got reminded of what a shadow looked like. <laughs> and you can see sometimes in the distance things cast shadows. And you approach them and you see the shadow becoming larger and larger. And as we approach, as Jesus approaches this passage, as we approach the next several weeks and months of Jesus' life, the shadow of the cross is now standing clearly before Jesus. And it's going to grow larger and larger. In fact, that shadow of the cross is going to shape everything we see and hear Jesus do over the coming weeks and months. And before this passage, before we get to this, a conversation Jesus has with his disciples, as far as we know, Jesus had never mentioned the cross yet. He had never mentioned death. He had really never even mentioned suffering all that much. He had, he had healed. He had talked about following him. He talked the, about the kingdom. But until this morning, until this passage in Mark chapter 8, he had never mentioned suffering and death as part of what he was here to do. Now, as we look at this, we're going to see a couple things here. We're going to see the disciples really confused. We're going to see even, perhaps, a new definition of satanic. But let's look at this again. I want to begin again in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Now, we've seen that phrase, Son of Man, multiple times throughout this gospel. Jesus refers to himself by that title more than any other title in the gospels. He calls himself the Son of Man. Now, if you're kind of wondering where that comes from, it comes from Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. And Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, refers to one who is to come, who will come with great power, who will come with great authority. It's a kingly figure. It's a prophetic figure. It's one that Daniel sees in the future as one who will rule and reign over God's people. It's a royal picture. And Jesus refers to himself by this title, Son of Man, quite a lot. And the disciples themselves may have heard him refer to the Son of Man, and they might have even made the connection to, to Jesus and the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7. And as a result, they probably would have thought to themselves, oh, it's a kingly figure. It's a kingly title. It has royalty in its name. It has power with it. And so when, G when, when Peter answers Jesus, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, oh, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. And Jesus is connecting that to himself being the Son of Man Peter is no doubt thinking to himself, and I imagine he's pretty excited. Because that's what Peter has been taught. That's what they all had been taught. But what Jesus is going to do here in chapter 8 is he's going to take that idea of the royal son of man and he's going to marry it and wed it, if you will, to another passage in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 53. And I'm going to go back and read a little bit of Isaiah chapter 3 to you. If you want to turn there, you can. Isaiah chapter 53 is one of several passages that's referred to as passages about the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says this about the suffering servant. That he is, that he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Look down at verse 10 of that same chapter. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Now these passages were there for all to see. There was real confusion and even debate among Jewish circles of the first century about how to interpret those passages and who they were referring to. But as Jesus comes to this conversation with Peter and with the disciples in Caesarea Philippi, he's doing something that they are not expecting. He's He's joining this idea of this royal, powerful, son of man, kingly figure with this idea of one who would suffer and be crushed and he would die. And he's saying, they're both the same person. And on top of that, he says, I am this person. I am the one who will one day reign and be king, but I'm also the one who will be oppressed, who will be afflicted, who will be torn, who will be crushed, and who will die. Now, this is confusing for them. I, I know we look back at this after 2,000 years and we, we think it makes perfect sense to us, but for them, this was something brand new. They, they weren't sure about this. They now knew for sure who he was. They knew he was, in fact, the Christ, the Anointed One. We saw that last week. And yet now what Jesus has to do is not just establish his identity, he has to, for them, redefine what it means to be Messiah. Because their idea of Messiah was this kingly figure. And he's going to tell them being Messiah means more than just showing up and kicking the Romans out. It means more than being king or having a military army behind you. It means that there is suffering and death and pain. But it's also interesting to me, at the end of verse 31, he says, and after three days, rise again. And verse 32 says, he was stating the matter plainly. He wasn't speaking in parables. He wasn't speaking in riddles. He just said, guys, listen, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The leaders there are going to get mad at me. They're going to arrest me. They're going to persecute me. They're going to crush me. They're going to kill me. But it's okay, because on the third day, I'm going to come back alive. He said it plainly. No riddles, no parables, just here it is. Here's the plan. And yet Peter did not ever hear resurrection, did he? Look at Peter's response. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. By the way, that word rebuke is the same word that Jesus uses to cast out demons. It is like... It, it's, it's, it's a harsh word. Now, can you imagine the nerve of Peter to talk to Jesus like that? I remember the first time I talked back to my mom and dad. I don't know if I really rebuked them or not, but I came across a lot stronger than I should have. I only did it once. 
Can you imagine the nerve rebuking Jesus? Peter didn't hear resurrection. He heard the word suffer. He heard the word death. He heard the word rejection. And that's all he heard. And he never heard the rest of the sentence. His idea of Messiah was different than the Messiah's. And as a result, he, he missed into the sentence. I don't know about you, if somebody tells me they're going to die and then be resurrected, probably the point that will gather my attention the most will be that whole resurrection come back to life thing. Because I'm familiar with the idea of death. I know people die. What I'm not familiar with, what I've never seen, and what they have never seen really, is you know, somebody come back to life. Now, they've, seen, they've seen Jesus resurrect a couple people. But that would be what gets my attention, right? And yet for Peter, he never gets to the resurrection part because he's so stuck on the death part. By the way, we like the power of resurrection. But resurrections don't happen unless someone dies. Death always comes first. That's, look at this. That's the Son of Man. Jesus is waiting this idea of the Son of Man with the suffering servant. And he's, he's giving them a message they don't really quite understand. And he says that the Son of Man must suffer. Not will suffer, not can suffer, but must. Have to. It's required. It's not optional. He must Suffer. This is something, this is a command, this is a plan straight from heaven. That in order for God's plan for all of creation and for his people to be fulfilled, this has to take place. It's not, again, it's not optional, it is a must. He must suffer. He must be put on trial. He must be arrested. He must be scourged. He must be killed. He must suffer all these things. It's not an option. We've all heard that phrase, failure is not an option, made famous in the Apollo 13 movie. That These words were, in fact, uttered by Gene Krantz, the director of, of, of uh, Mission Control during the Apollo 13 mission. But Jesus is telling his disciples, suffering is not an option. Now that's not something we generally want to hear, is it? We would like to, if all, if, if, given, a, if given a multiple choice test, would you like to suffer? Option A, no. B, no. C, are you Is that Of course it is. We don't want to suffer. We actually spend a good portion of our lives and time and energy trying to avoid the idea of suffering. And yet for Jesus, he is saying to them, as we move forward, it's a requirement. The Son of Man, I must suffer. We, we don't have it on the, on, on the baptistry, but what, what, is, what symbol is on that logo up there? It's a cross. What is the most common symbol in Christianity? 
What, if, if there is one symbol for Christianity, what is it? It's the cross. I want us to think about the irony of this for a moment. Of all the things that we could choose as a symbol for Christianity, it's not, it's not the gates of heaven, not that we really know what those look like anyway. It's not the crib that Jesus was, or the manger that Jesus was born. It's not the angels that sang. It's not Jesus walking on water. That'd be a cool little logo, wouldn't it? Jesus walking on water. Of all the symbols we have, it is the cross. Now, for most of us, we know in theory in our minds the cross was a place of execution, but for most of us, we don't, that, you know, we, we have gold crosses on our necklaces and on our earrings, and we wear crosses on our T-shirts, and we make them very artistic. Imagine, imagine the logo with a hypodermic needle or an electric chair, or a noose. And to understand that while those for us, you know, those images are, ooh, that's, that's how people die. That's what that is. If you were in Jesus' day, the cross was horrific. It was a terror symbol. There was nothing remotely attractive about a cross. And Jesus is saying, that's where I must go. And so we have, as a church and as Christians, we have taken a symbol of suffering and of death and have said, that it. Now, we don't have thought about that, but the truth is, that's actually very profound. Jesus says, I must suffer. The path to the kingship of the Son of Man the path to the victory and the power of royalty, the Son of Man figure, get the suffering of the servant. And one does not happen without the other. Remember, we're going, very first, we used to go, when I, was, when I was growing up, we would take a church ski trip to Colorado every year. And, uh, you know, by the end of the first year or two, I thought I was pretty good. I wasn't, but I thought I was. And so if you know anything about snow skiing, you know that there are multiple levels of ski slopes. There's, there's the green ones, and that's the, that's the easy ones. That's the ones you start off on, and that's the ones you, you ski on. There's the blue ones. That's, that's a little bit harder. And then there's the, the, the black diamonds. Now, the black diamonds are called expert. Now, if you're really, if you're really arrogant, you do the double black diamonds. But there was a there was t-shirt you could buy and it would say, with a black diamond symbol on it, no guts, no glory. You don't get the glory of the black diamond without having the guts to, you know, go down something really, really steep. What Jesus is saying to the disciples this morning is, no suffering, no glory. No death, no resurrection. Now, all they heard was death and suffering. They didn't hear the resurrection. They, just, they got caught on that. The power of God here for, this, for, for Christ, the power of God is not in the idea that God stays above the fight. It's not the idea that God somehow stays removed and stays distant and is untouched by our struggle or even by the mess of our sin. The power of God, the majesty of God, the glory of God is that he is... He's 
and the mess of our lives. And the glory is he does that and then comes back out still perfect and glorious and powerful. That's the majesty of God. I've had multiple conversations with, through the years with non-Christians and with people of, of different faith. And one of their, one of their uh, real problems with, with Christianity, as they've, as they've really thought through it, is how can you say that the God you believe in, this God who created the universe, this God who is holy and righteous, this God who is all-powerful, how would that God have submitted himself to something like the cross? And that was, a, that was an issue for Peter. It was an issue for the Jews of that day. It was an issue for the Romans and the Greeks of that day. How would somebody who you think is really all that be in that situation? And so the world looks at that and goes, well, that's what Jesus is trying to illustrate for them and to try to teach them. Uh, they, they thought, the disciples thought they were expecting deliverance to the use of power and, and politics and, and military might and armies. They didn't recognize that the reign of God, the reign of the Messiah would come through, through suffering. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. There's no power of resurrection without first a death. The central claims of Christ and of our faith this morning require the resurrection. God demonstrates his power through the resurrection, but it doesn't exist unless death has happened first. We want resurrection power without the pain of death. We want the benefits of forgiveness without the shed blood. We want the blessings without the submission and the obedience. We want, we want the rest without the suffering. This death, this suffering Jesus is talking about has a purpose. It has a goal. And his crucifixion will not simply be a tragedy, but it will be a path to victory. Now Peter just couldn't stomach this idea. And we're picking on Peter, but he's not speaking just for himself. The truth is, every one of those 11 disciples would have lined up right behind him and said the exact same thing. They could not imagine the idea of the Messiah being shamed and humiliated and crucified. But Jesus' purpose includes the cross. As a result of this misunderstanding, of, as a result of the pride, as a result of whatever, Peter and the others missed the resurrection. And part of the reason is they had projected onto Jesus their image, their understanding, their desires of what they wanted the Messiah to be. Now, let's don't pretend this morning that they're the only ones who put onto God their image of what God should be. How many times do we approach God or even approach the scriptures and say, I don't know if I like that or not. That's not the God I believe in. Well, be careful now. The God you believe in may not be the God of the Bible. God has, God has gone to great lengths to give us a lot of detail about who he is and what he's like. Just because I don't like something about him doesn't mean it's not true. I don't get to come to God and tell him who he is. Can you imagine, can you imagine the gall of that? 
Can you imagine meeting someone for the very first time? Let's say tomorrow morning you're, whatever the circumstances is, you're at work or you, you have a new neighbor that's been, yes, let's try this one. You have somebody new that's moved in not too far from you and tomorrow you meet them. And they introduce themselves. They tell you, yeah, my name is, uh, my name is Gary. And you say, well, hey, Gary. Hey, I know all about you. And you begin to tell Gary what he's like. And Gary says, no, wait a minute. That's not who I am. Well, I don't care who you are, Gary. This is who I think you ought to be. Now, that's just silly, isn't it? But we do that to God all the time. We come to God with our own ideas of who God has to be, of what he has to do, of what he should perform for us, of what he has to look like. And we can't come to God and put on him what we expect. God's telling us who he is, not the other way around. Peter misses Christ here a little bit because he has a preconceived idea of who he thinks God has to be and who the Messiah, who the Messiah has to be. So as a result, he misses the resurrection part because he's so focused on the death part. Now look at this response. Jesus rebukes Christ, and Jesus turns around, and Jesus tends to get the last word on things like this. And Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. I asked earlier, what is our idea of satanic? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. You know what satanic is? Not setting our, not setting our mind on God's interests. Boy, that bronze it up a little bit, doesn't it? So you don't have to answer this out loud because I don't want to answer it out loud either. But how much of my life this past week was spent with a satanic mindset? How much of this past week did I live out not with God's interest but with my interests? If I did that, and I did at some point this week do that, I lived for those moments as in a satanic mindset. I don't know why you, that scares the daylights out of me. Jesus says... You're living, you're responding, Peter, not with God's interests in mind, but with your own. That is satanic. And that right there is a definition of satanic that ought to scare us to death. To be living a life with our interests and not on God's interests. So what does this mean? What are his interests? Well, obviously we know if we were to read and start reading in Genesis and start going through the, the scriptures and by the time we come to Mark, we would begin to have an understanding that God's interests are this, that he created us, that he made us to, to be a certain way, that he made us to know him and to be in a relationship with him, that we rebelled as a human race, that we turned against the one who gave us life and said to him, I don't believe you, I don't trust you, I want to be my own God. That's what every one of us has said. But God loved us so much that he wouldn't let our work. And so he began to what happened when he created. He moved to history, starting with the promise to Adam and Eve, and through the calling out of the of the people, the men like Noah, and the of Abraham, and then Isaac and Jacob, and the people of Israel, and men like David, he worked with us. who would be God and man and be the bridge between the two 
And that what we see in Mark chapter 8 is just the next chapter in what God has been working for thousands of years to accomplish. We would see this big, overarching story, and we would begin to understand that God's plan was that he would take the very people who had said no and transform them and redeem them into a people adopted into his family who have said yes. That's the plan. And Peter says, I don't see that plan. You can't do this. And Satan, <laughs> Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. What's interesting about this response as we wrap this up this morning, Jesus, has, as he's looking forward to the suffering, is not clearly... It's clearly not caught by surprise anything that's going to happen in the coming months. He knows why he's here. He knows the direction that his life is moving, and he knows the goals for which he was born. And so, if I'm, you know, if I'm there, I'm going, how can we avoid this whole suffering and death part? You know, I got to admit, I'd be planning my calendar around not showing up to Jerusalem for Passover. But Jesus, knowing exactly why he's here, and knowing What's going to happen, and knowing that, that what's going to happen is why he's here, he doesn't even try to avoid it. He goes, well, let, me, let, me, let me share with you something why this is important. He already knows the rejection is on the way. He already knows, he already knows the death is on the way. He knows the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their leadership are going to reject him. He knows the Romans will crucify him. He knows the suffering that is on its way. He doesn't seek to avoid it. He doesn't try to play nice with the Pharisees and hope that they don't want to crucify him. He doesn't play nice with the Romans and hope they'll be nice to him. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And so, and because of that, he just moves forward. He has seen and knows the realities of all that death, and he marches towards it anyway. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth, Satan had taken, he got, he'd gone out in the wilderness for 40 days. You remember the temptations of Christ in the wilderness? The very beginning of his time. And Satan had given him three temptations that were all really designed to give Jesus an alternative to God's plan. A shortcut. And Jesus had rejected those things because he knew where he was heading. The divine nature, the, 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 the divinity of Christ knew already why he was here. He knew the pain and suffering that was on the way. And by the way, even today, I believe Jesus bears the scars. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, said there was a picture, John sees the, the Lamb standing in the midst of heaven, the Lamb being Christ, the Lamb standing as if slain. It means Jesus bears Even in the weeks following his resurrection, you remember that Thomas doubted him and that he shows Thomas the, star, the scars. And he says, Thomas, put your fingers through the holes in my hands. Put your arm, well, imagine that, put your arm in the hole in my side. Jesus knew that was coming. He didn't avoid it. Even today, he bears the scars for it. By the way, our, our symbol is one of suffering. Our Lord said he must suffer. Know what else he told us? He said, you, 
My followers, if they came after me, they will, in fact, come after you. And yet, how much of our time is spent trying to avoid the very thing God said would happen to us? Now, again, I'm not, I'm not saying, going, Ooh, I get to suffer. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that God tends to do his mightiest work in the midst of suffering and death. And we might miss the almighty power of God by running away from suffering and pain. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about. Suffering and pain, even, even death, these are not instruments of God's torture or these are not just merely signs of God's displeasure. These sometimes are the very things God's using us, is using to do the work of redemption and resurrection. And I say this knowing all that it can entail. It's scary, sometimes it's scary to say things like this. But there's no redemption without the suffering and there's no resurrection without the death. Sometimes God brings us through those things so that we see the power of the resurrection. Because until we have seen the power of God's resurrection and eternal life, we haven't seen all of God's power yet. So this morning, like Peter, like the disciples around him, he tells us that he's going to suffer and die. We know this for us as history. It's already happened. But it was required. And our Lord, knowing it, walked right into it. And he did it because in part, he also knows you. He knew your face. He knows your face. And from before the foundation of the world was laid, he knew you this day would be here. He knew you would have been one that had turned your back on Christ, turned your back on God, who had said, I want to be my own God. And he also knew you as one that would need the power of resurrection and redemption. So he walked towards the cross so that even here in 2019, there could be someone respond and move from death to eternal life. Who could move from suffering to blessing. And who could experience the power of the almighty creator God giving new life. That's the promise this morning.